Hello. 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 Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to Watch the Space. Uh, I'm going to start by acknowledging that we're gathered today on Aranda Country. Watch the Space has been on Aranda Country for 27 years. Uninvited. Um, pay my respects to Aranda peoples here and any other First Nations people in the room um, and to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome. Um, this is a really special morning. It's been a really special week. Um, Rachel O'Reilly is in town. Um, Thursday night we played Infractions um, as part of the tour from the IMA. Um, and today we're here for a panel discussion and I'll let Rachel introduce that and the panellists. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Also, yeah, thanks for having me um, back on. It's so good to be back here on Aranda Country. And, um, yeah, I've had many conversations um, with First Nations people and climate activist people already this week, and um, I'm really glad you could come. Um, the panel is called Cultural Work Across Fracking Front Lines, and um, we're going to kind of hit a few... Um, goals at the same time. So uh, the description that I wrote is kind of loose, but I but I I think it's good to read it out. So yeah, it's kind of connecting the making of the film to the First Nations perspective that continues, um, uh, which is the reason the film was made. The film was made to platform for First Nations voices on the fracking situation, um, not just in the Northern Territory, but across the whole country. Um, unfortunately, it's really good timing for this film to be touring at the moment. Um, so I think, you know, we can have quite an expanded conversation about that. So the description says, why follow a border-crossing industry as it makes its way across countries and how do we refuse mining companies' cultural work? Infractions was made in the wake of the NT scientific inquiry into fracking and reconnects the Queensland and Northern Territory stories of approvals. Uh, I've got some slides here that will also do that. Drilling and legal activism has commenced in the Beedaloo Basin, again following a brief period of rest um, during the early days of the pandemic lockdowns, while the federal government has since doubled down on planet-warming gas projects as a very poor solution uh, to pandemic economics. So this panel, uh, we're going to hear from um, Roxanne Highfold and Q Kenny first, and then we'll open it up. We've got members in the room also from Arid Lands Environment Centre and from the Central Australia Frack Free Alliance. Um, so after um, Roxanne and Q um, take us through their responses to the film and also um, Q's tour presenting the film in Berlin and London last year, um, we're happy to um, have a general discussion that, about whatever people want to talk about. So Roxanne Highfold is an Aranda, Naranga and Corona, sorry, woman with ties to Central and Eastern Aranda nations through a mother's side and ties to the York and Eyre Peninsula through a father's side. 
Roxanne grew up surrounded by her community and has spent many years on country advocating for self-determination and self-sufficiency for First Nations. Uh, her particular passion is decolonisation, health and environmental awareness and justice. She hopes to see a future where Aboriginal people can lead the way on environmental issues, be more self-sufficient, self-governed on country and in turn be able to strengthen their mind, heart, body, spirit and connection to country. Q Nakamura Kenny is a Western Aranda woman and a community, community support worker, artist and activist from Nadaria, in, which is also Hermansburg. Uh, west of Alice Springs in the Northern Territory, also studying law at Deakin University. She's been involved in grassroots campaigns against the Northern Territory emergency response, the intervention since 2007, and against Northern Territory gas fracking with the Protect Country Alliance, um, which is how um, we met. She's contributed to numerous fictional and environmental films and community projects and accompanied um, the film to um, its European premieres. So um, I've just got a few slides here that we're going to use to um, get back into the headspace of um, what it means to do this kind of work. Um, I think it's important to just say a bit about what I'm doing making a film like this. So um, I grew up in Gladstone where the, on, the first onshore um, gas approvals happened in 2010. My parents had a fishing store in the harbour and um, my, uh, it, it's relevant to me that uh, my uncle was actually the federal taxation commissioner during the 1980s when they did a lot of tax reform that sent corporate criminals to jail for tax evasion. So I also think about that you know, in the context of all these companies paying zero tax and ruining country um, and not um, contributing anything. Uh, so I, there's many other links. I was actually working at... Um, the State Museum when it was sponsored by Santos for five years to licence the, the install in, in Queensland. And um, these images here, you know, this is my museum. That's the Darling Downs on the left-hand side. The dredging in off offshore of Gladstone was actually the biggest dredging project in Australian history at that time. And um, they rewrote the laws to, to dump toxic waste right next to the Great Barrier Reef. When uh, Just before all those fish died, you'll probably remember it from the news. It was covered up for a number of years. The police cars on the bottom right um, are actually Santos-sponsored police cars. So not even in the US has there been that degree of... Um, police car, car sponsorship and you know those cars are driving around in the same places where people were uh, being taken to um, court for fr uh, fracking protests. Um, I was invited by Alex Kelly to attend this really amazing event that was organised by the Protect Country Alliance, which is how I met a lot of people in the film. I only listened at that event and I just happened at the exact same time to get a, um, a film um, commission offered to me um, based on the previous work I'd been doing about fracking since 2013. So I was doing a lot of drawings. I was ex talking about fracking in art spaces. Um, and I was trying to explain um, to cultural workers that we should be taking positions on this um, industry if we're promoting Aboriginal art and not defending country. So um, these are, you know, these are the, all the protagonists in the film. Um, Q's here today, obviously, and um, she's going to obviously talk more than everyone else um, about being in there. But, um, you know, there's a whole geography that um, hopefully comes across um, with the film in terms of connecting um, 
across, particularly across the Queensland and the NT border, how these companies use borders to erase the histories of their practices. Um, as when the when the moratorium lift, was lifted in the Northern Territory, I just happened to get this film money to make this film, and I wanted to contribute something based on my knowledge of how much disinformation um, and duplicity and um, you know, basically very well-designed lies happen at the beginning uh, of an installation process. So, um, yeah, if we want to talk a bit more about the making of the film, I'm happy to go back to that diagram. So, um, I've asked, I'd like to ask you to um, join me up here and maybe you want to speak about... I mean, it's, very, <laughs> it's a very long distance from Queensland here, let alone from Berlin to here. Um, and it was also Q's um, first trip overseas, and we managed to squeeze a lot into one tour. So we're just going to mention a few things that we got up to over there, and um, yeah, bring it, bring the conversation back here, and think about what it means to kind of circulate these stories around the country right now. Um, watch um, the space for having me here and um, giving me the um, opportunity to um, have this platform today. Um, and I'd like to thank Rachel um, and Hilary, um, which she didn't come, come um, she um, um, forwarded my name to you, um, and that's where it all started. So there's always somebody there in the background that started this and mentioned my name. Um, so, yeah, Rachel just um, came out of the blue and um, hooked up on Facebook and had a conversation, and it all started from there, and then um, invited her to come out to Hermesburg and did some filming and... Um, um was quite short, but did you know put a lot into it, even though she had a um busy tight schedule to travel up to um to the top end and then back um to um queensland and back to um berlin um, at that time, I did not know that this conversation was going to open the door of my first international travel and to have um, to be an Indigenous person coming from a colonised nation and going to the mother motherland England and being in a, in a place where there's corruption where there's a lot of that um, with the you know all these big buildings and all I could just see was just blood you know, blood on these buildings and for how far that nation got by, you know, act of genocides and killings and murders of um, Indigenous peoples and the rape of the land from throughout the world, not only Australia. And just... And I just couldn't bear it. It was... I saw, um, but um, for me... It was just, I, I felt trapped, but with this film, it really, um, like I said, it, it, opened, it opened another chapter 
in knowing that, you know, Alice Springs isn't just it. This isn't just it. There's more out there for um, for me being, you know, um, when I started my law degree and um, due to COVID has, have, have not completed it yet, but had these skills and going over there and taking the knowledge of my um, learning of the law and stuff and the, how we still live here in this country and in, under the Westminster laws. Um, and we've never pulled away from that just as yet. So I've, um, I also had the opportunity to speak at the Westminster University. And um, as there was a lot of um, people that was there and um, spoke a lot about, um, you know, the destruction of um, land, the um, poisoning of water and killing of animals and just recent killing of people just to get rid of them off the land that the, that the mining companies are wanting to get to and it is still happening to this day. And um, I was quite um, honoured to have that um, stage in Westminster University and come across a lot of people and including, as and you can see, the, the, one of the men, he, he lived in the APUR lands for 30-odd so, years and um, he, he um, knows um, very well on what, what, what was going on and um, I made a lot of good networks with them over there and our conversations and um, talks are continuous and I've made a, um, wonderful, great friends. And also being in Berlin was just... Um, people drive so fast. <laughs> And especially in the um, 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 Uber. <laughs> so then, um, yeah, so um, in Berlin, it also gave me the opportunity to um, go to Leipzig, where the um, one of the museums that holds our um, Churung, Churung's our own um, um, sacred objects that was stolen by... Um, explorers um, such as um, the German missionaries took a lot of Aranda um, Chorungs, um, these sacred objects that holds our lore and um, teaches our, um, that has a knowledge of culture and song lines that we have connections throughout the central region and beyond. Um, and that also connects with the stars. Um, but I didn't get to see that. Um, this, um, we, I don't, you know, I didn't have access to it. But was told that there's a lot of um, Aranda and Central Aranda peoples um, objects, and they are looking at returning it back. And I was like, that's good. But they said it won't happen like 10 or 20 years time. Um, so um, yeah, and I also had the opportunity to attend. Um, the first visit at the um, museum in Leipzig. Um, there was a few people from here that travelled over there to go and um, to collect the elders that was um, kidnapped and taken up on ships um, thousands of years ago. And there are like very tiny boxes. We went down underground and there was a, a long hallway and as we was walking through the hallway, there was also other big 
ornaments and items that belong to other nations throughout the world, I was quite fascinated in one of the objects that struck me and I felt a very sense of energy was a um, a samurai um, soldier suit, um, suit and sword. And um, us indigenous people, we're very spiritual, um, and so is everybody else. Very spiritual, but you have to learn to know and how to work your inner self to see what you can't, you know, see properly. But what I saw as I was walking, I've seen a lot of lost souls and these these spirits that was connected to this. And I told the manager of that museum, I said, look, you still have these spirits still connected to these objects. When are you going to return, return this um, objects and um, arts and whatever they had there? Well, with the samurai, what that caught me, and I said, are you guys looking at returning this um um, this samurai um, bodysuit and the sword and they said we'd love to but we just can't give it there's a process um, they said that if we just give it back to the Chinese government we need to follow the right family um, who owns it and so the, you know my understanding then came through like oh it's the same process for ours so we have that same kind of system as well um, meeting those other um, First Nations people in there when I did the um, smoking ceremony in in the basement um, was very emotional and um, I was in tears when um, when they did the um, smoking ceremony inside there and then I kind of I was invited to the um, event that happened that night and. I thought I um, left Australia to get away from Australians and I ended up bumping into ex-CLC workers. <laughs> Came up to me and said, oh, what a cute, he said that to me. And I'm like, oh. And his name's um, Peter. He was like, oh, what a cute. I was the one that helped your grandfathers at Rainbow Valley to start the PBC kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not here for that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so and then we was we was exchanging words in Narendra and um these um other people were like not shocked but quite amazed to see how, you know, non indigenous people also in in this country and that we share this country with is also engaging with our culture and learning the language because it's a two way learning nowadays and um and it's it's it, even though it's a, it's a choice, but um, how I see it, um, you, you don't have a choice. You have to learn both ways nowadays. So um, being there in um, Berlin also was the first night at the um, opening. Um, oh, the first night we got locked out of the apartment um, when we went out to have dinner and stuff to meet the... Sebastian, um, the film editor, um, wonderful people um, in Berlin, very caring, very polite. Um, some were very patient and others were a bit like rush, rush, rush. But um, yeah, so that first night at the film met a lot of people. Um, it was um, great to see that, you know, 
there's a lot of people out there that is um, that is out there to you know they do care and that there are people out there that can support and to support in like resources or um, other things as well because I was supposed to be back there um, visiting the museum this month but because of COVID that's changed everything so everything's delayed um, yeah but the one thing that kind of annoyed me on this trip was I met with these academics um, the cultural what are they called again cultural, Institute for cultural Inquiry. yeah um, they kept asking me about how we connect to, to the land and how we, how do we sense and feel the spirit and and of that. So I had to explain to them how we feel things. It's like when you touch a rock, you can feel that energy or that tree. You can feel that because every living thing has an energy. Um, everything. It, it's a, it's a network. It's a system of their own. And it, it's what connects us to the land, and it's it's, and it was really hard to um, make them understand these academics. They kept saying, "But oh, why? Oh, but how? But this and but that." I'm, I'm like, "Can we go now?" <laughs> yeah. So it was yeah. It was just I kind of felt a bit offended, but I just didn't want it to because I was in their area and I didn't want it to be rude or anything. So. You know, in life, you have to allow other people to talk and have their say and all that stuff. So I kind of just let them be. It was like, okay, um, yeah. But I, it was good. I respected. Um, but with them, with the academics, it it was very, very hard to make them understand how us um, First Nations people are so connected to land, to to water, to the sky, and to the landscape. Yeah, so just, is that on? Just to summarise, so we, 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 launched, we launched the film in Berlin um, and then we went to the Institute of Contemporary Art and we did, um, we did a panel on race and law with the, with the Birkbeck um, uh, University and uh, Afro-Parisian um, film producers and First Nations academics. Um, I think that, that was a... Great panel, but it was a, you know, like, we hate London, basically. You hate it more than me. I also hate it. Um, and uh, that, that picture there is Q um, uh, speaking to an international, uh, like, research centre on culture and politics. Um, the, I think this was the most meaningful event that we went to. It was a, um, a, a really great organisation called Arts Catalyst, and they all of their programmes bring together artists and activists on different issues... Um, and this weekend just happened to be the same weekend we were in London and it was um, artists working with activists on mining issues all around the world and it was called Extractable Matters. Uh, and there were a bunch of people there. Um, there's a bunch of people that live in London called the London Mining um, Network and they gave us a tour, in, uh, a tour around the inner city of London um, just to kind of materialise how proximate all those corporations are to um, the British uh, government and the royal family. Um, we, we stood outside all of their offices, I think about five different Australian mining companies, and where there were actors there holding up images and statistics on um, 
you know, existing struggles against mines all around the world and the work that they do, con con you know, collaborating with those people um, across different um, struggles. So that was really, um, you know, educational, but also really um, important to put what we were trying to do in the context of what a lot of people are, are trying to do right now. Um, you know, using cultural spaces, but also using public events and, you know, public education um, to connect up um, people dealing with very similar issues around the world. The picture on the left, uh, <laughs> we, do you want to talk about that? Okay, we were sitting, we were just waiting outside the ICA and we went for a walk to check out Buckingham Palace and um, a British gas truck turned up to change the gas, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of the Queen's house. <laughs> and, um, and it was the same, you know, that company is the same company that pressured the sale of Queensland gas reserves in 2010 to begin fracking in Australia. So, you know, it's kind of ridiculously um, timely. This is what the exhibition looks like in Brisbane. Um, it's going to look different everywhere, obviously. I, I showed a picture of that the other night, but the, the map um, um, we might talk a bit more about once we start having a conversation about the campaign. The map on the wall is the map that comes out of the film that dates from um, 2019. So, you know, the arc of the film um, goes through the, um, you know, the drama of the fracking inquiry uh, the disappointment around the difference between what it said it was doing and what it was always um, going to be doing. Um, and then, you know, at the end of it, um, we're back uh, with Gadrian um, and the protesters in Barilula and they're talking about uh, blockades and, you know, other strategies apart from being, um, you know, the necessary difficulty, difficulty of being also... Um, sucked into the important um, reform work and legal um, work that has to happen at the same time. Um, we are very lucky um, uh, also to have Roxanne here. I don't know when um, you want to chip in, but maybe this is the right time. Hi everyone, um, my name is Roxanne. I'm an Arundel woman um, from my mother's country here. Um, um, uh, thank you, Rachel, for inviting me. Um, I want to acknowledge the um, Arundel people, the ancestors past and present, whose country we're actually sitting on today and um, getting, you know, having privilege to talk at. Um, I am a local person. Um, I grew up here. Me and Q were actually um, gone to school together and spent most of our life here, um, here in the NT, the top end as well. Um, a bit about myself. I, um, I must declare I actually work at CLC. That's, that's recent. Um, I started there, but I'm working on, a, um, working on helping Aboriginal people apply for money through the ABA account. So it's worthwhile like um, trying to get them to get the money they are entitled to, to help improve their communities, um, which is such a challenging job because it's the money that comes from mining country that um, over the years since the Native Title Act has um, came into force, um, percentage has been put in way. And um, for Aboriginal people, 
um, to access and um, to use to help improve uh, the community and address their needs. But unfortunately, it hasn't been accessed and um, it's because it's caught up in red tape. It's actually part of a, it's been put into a pool of other Commonwealth funding um, and it's quite challenging. Like if you look at the guidelines and that, it's really convoluted and um, I tell you the average person who's you know not good at English, even people who are good at English, couldn't find it very um, challenging to navigate um, and be able to apply for that money. It's it's quite a very um, yeah lengthy process um, and caught up with red tape. Um, but that's me. That's what I'm doing now. And I um, prior to that, I was working at um, at Congress for eight years. So my background's in Aboriginal health research um, and I talk mainly from, I'm here today mainly from my perspective as an Aboriginal person and talking about, you know, the impacts of colonisation and, um, yeah, how it's been detrimental. I mean, how, you know, colonisation has really, really put our people in a, such a shitty position um, and you know, it's really a struggle day to day, um, trying to get heard, trying to, you know, be able to be equal citizens in this country, if you want to say citizens, considering not part of the constitution or Australians. Um, you know, and just having, um, just living, living in a decent lifestyle on our country that was invaded and, you know, our country taken away from us and destroyed. So. Yeah, that's a little bit of me. Um, I also sit on ALEC as the deputy chair, so on the board. So through my um, position there and then and, and just talk, you know, I'm very passionate about um, climate justice and, um, you know, trying to reduce our footprint, our environmental footprint as Aboriginal people and looking at what it means to be um, living more I guess, minimally, more like sustainably, you know, addressing our health, like addressing our health needs and improving our health and well-being overall. So that's me pretty much. Did you have any more questions for me? <laughs> um, I mean, sorry, I'm going to use this mic because yeah. the others are not working so well. Um, yeah, I mean, the discussion we, we've had, you know, like, because we're using art spaces to have these conversations, right? And I think... Um, uh, you know, like from from the point of view of you know the reproduction of culture, um, uh, I would to me I feel like this question of whether the art makes a difference can only be answered by the people most affected by the issue. So I do I do wonder um, you know like uh, in in framing the the fracking issue. Um, you know what? What are the th what are the films that need to be made? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean, and the, and then you know, like, um, I guess not. Um, you can make forever in a day films that highlight issues. You know, not only locally but internationally. But I think the way you produce them, who you get involved, and how you. Um, present that message you want to present in the film makes is is what matters. I also believe that it's us more, you know, Aboriginal people that need to drive that message and reinforce it and continuously say this is not good enough. 
we cannot, you know, we, we're tired of being dismissed, overlooked, you know, not consulted with properly, um, you know, not part of the conversation, but really driving and not being at the table, you know. We're, we're, and, and you've highlighted that quite well in this film and, you know, the lack of consultation and them nitpicking who, who to get approval or consent off of, um, you know. And also they prey on our... Um, our vulnerability as Aboriginal people, you know, the way that we live in poverty um, and, you know, we're trying to survive. So surviving, you know, our mob need money, they need to be able to function day to day and, um, and I'll nitpick, you know, from certain tribes or certain clans or, you know, who, who, who is probably the easiest target. I hate to say that about my mob, but it's, it's true in a sense. Um, and, and also, going back to what you're saying, um, you know, like, and Q, I think you would agree to this, you know, we carry a heavy burden in our community, you know, because one, we're sitting on the fence in both worlds, we're actively engaging in our community and doing activism at the same time, but then working in these spaces that are really conflictual and conflictual to us and our mob as well. Um, and always trying to find a balance of how do we get this out to our mom. I, I go, you know, I'm always constantly thinking about because, you know, through, um, through colonialism and uh, what they've done and the destruction they've caused in our country, um, they've also brought along um, tools like, you know, the conquering divide and the lateral violence and causing divide amongst our mobs. So I'm always constantly thinking how can we collectively work together and unite as Aboriginal people to kind of um, strengthen, you know, our relationships, but be able to work together collectively on addressing some of these issues. Um, and it's, it's hard work, wouldn't you agree? Did you want to say? Yeah. Um, just to add to last night's conversation. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that is true. We, we um, struggle every day and um, we don't have the, um, the, the voice and even we have our own Indigenous um, politicians that are there and we have um, sellouts and the black, um, the black el elites, such as Marcia Langton, that was once employed by Rio Tinto, that once worked as an anthropologist here in Central, um, with Central Land Council back in the days, and literally ripped a lot of our people, you know, um, giving them false um, promises, and you know, making and the, and the hope as well, thinking that, you know, that piece of land you know, we'll, we'll give you, you know, you can have that land, but you still got to go through native title so the mining company can have some, you know, a piece of that as well. So, which isn't fair at all. And, and the people that are in these positions can make this historic momentum changes by sticking up and speaking for your people and making these... Um, legislation um, changes change because, you know, legislations um, are, all, you know, it also discriminates. Yeah. And um, it, it, it only suits the needs of those people who are wanting to be feeling protected. And, and discriminating our mob 
and our people are vulnerable people and we all know that and um, we're all put in a category um, whether we like it or not even though I don't like to be you know put in a category whether you're you know straight gay lesbian whatnot no one should be we're all human beings nobody should be categorized or put in in a you know stereotyped, stereotyped and put in different you know cow cow yard or you go over there you're the good ones and yeah, yeah, and with our old people, you know, they, they've been ripped off for so, so, so many years that they thought that, you know, Central Land Council was, is the very backbone of the Commonwealth um, Government and it's a statutory body that is there to um, speak on behalf and to negotiate with Indigenous um, First Nations people and that's including with Northern Land Council up in the top end. But a lot of things has been happening, um, all these corruptions and um, stuff and the fake critical owners and who's the real TO, who's the real bloodline. and So there's a lot of, um, you know, um, arguments and fights within the family and, you know, the, 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 the royalties and the, like the ABA also, like once um, Minister Nigel Scullion back then, um, you know, used ABA funding for um, a for a cattle station up in the top end or something. This is like a couple of years ago. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I also heard from um, Secret Source that ABA was also um, for anybody that can apply um, for it. doesn't matter. You don't have to be, you know, Indigenous also. But, Roxanne, you can correct me on that if I'm wrong. But that's the source that I had. And through arts like this and through film, like you said to you, Roxanne, you know, yes, we make, you know, continuously make these films, but we need to make it in language, interpret it in language. Um, invite and have old people to attend to these functions and to be part of this movement, to be part of this campaign and to understand all those yellow dots what's on, on that screen where, you know, Hermansburg, we we uh, we supposed to be living our lifestyle there, but unfortunately we're not. We, we are not living our most expensive lifestyle <laughs> Um, like last night's conversation out of um, Palm Valley Royalty, I only get $45 a year and the rest goes to Queensland. So all the fat cats over there gets more than we do and um, our household kitchen gas was then changed to electric stoves because they didn't want to pay for all this um, gas for um, in the community. And um, we had solar panels put up. There was like $50 million worth of um, solar panels. Within five, five years, it's been, it was then dismantled. It was just a waste of money. So, you know, Hermesbeck's always a guinea pig for the federal government and the Northern Territory government. We were the first for the intervention. We were the first for the intervention. And... Uh, that, that was a big kick in the guts because it was all in the name for mining the intervention. And, um, yeah, so it's... 
yeah, opening up communities and wanting to move us into Alice Springs. And we were like, no, we're not moving to Alice Springs. That's not our home. We're Aranda people. We're Western Aranda people. We're not Central Aranda people. This is not our area. And so we, you know, just fought and fought and fought and then having, having your own people turn against you because all they could think of was just the dollar signs and dollar signs. And Central Land Council also. Because they're, they're poor. We're living in poverty, most of our mob, you know. Yeah. We, we, we want to be back on country. But, um, and living in functional houses. Um, but, you know, and it's not because, um, you know, we're greedy for money. We need it. We really need money to live. We need our homes to be well-structured, environmentally friendly, um, and functioning, and, and, and more houses so we're not overcrowded. Um, and mining companies, they need to pay the rent. They need to pay us, you know? They don't value the country like we value the country, you know, the connection we have for country. And they don't care to understand that because it's profit, profit over, you know, the environment energy. Um, and, and like you said, Q, you know, deepening the pockets of the fat mining magnets and just they don't care. And the government's just the, the basically the arm or the, the stick for them that um, allows them to continuously, um, you know, shitting on our people. Um, and just to give you a little bit of context, you know, about our mob as Aboriginal people or the Aboriginal First Nations people of Australia... You know, Australian, the, the current population to Australia is 25.5 million Australians, right? Aboriginal people account for far less than that. We're less than 800,000 people in Australia. You know, pre-colonisation, it was predicted that we were about 2 million Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And due to the introduction of, you know, um, diseases and then the massacres, our you know, and, and then the health condition, the stresses, the segregation, the, you know, stolen generation, and then the punitive racist measures and policies they put in place to kind of wipe us out and our identity. You know, our mob are dwindling. We're a minority in this country. Um, and we really need... Um, we're sick of fighting, but we're still here. And we've built that resilience. But unfortunately, you know, I worry... I don't know about you, Q, but I worry about the future of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country, you know, because we're struggling as Aboriginal people. Almost one in two Aboriginal people have a chronic health condition, you know, and to see, you know, our... our um, you know, we are very... I hate to say it's sick, but we're very stressed. We're living under stressful conditions, and all we want is just some equal rights. We want to be able to live in a first... Well, country, if you want to call that, a very rich country, you know, and be able to flourish as a population and be able to maybe at least be half, you know, flourish that much that we can meet, you know, Australians' population by half, you know. And if you think, if you look at it from that perspective of view, it's sickening, it's absolutely shocking to see that a nation that once covered the whole of Australia... Um, you know, and lived for thousands, 65,000 years or more, continuously con going on their own business, going about their own business with their culture, um, their practices and whatnot, and living in harmony, being connected to the country 
and being able to and thoroughly understanding what our connection to country is, knowing that we are part of the bigger um, the bigger picture, and we are just part of the animal kingdom. We're nothing more, nothing less. We're just animals as well, um, you know. And then living and thriving, and then to be reduced this way is is shocking, and um, and not being able to get the the needs, our rights nowadays, you know, it's it's that's why we stand up every day and fight for our own mob because, you know, I, I hate to be put in this vulnerable vulnerable position, but I know that being in who I am and like yourself, Q as well, because we were quite troublemakers when we were young, man, I think we were just, you know, born to be this way, is to carry that torch, you know, and use our voices as as a as a you know a way of trying to you know bring um, shed some light on the injustice, raising continuously. And I, I I'm I'm a moral person. I like to see it um, myself as. Um, and I will never subscribe to that title of being a coconut or being a, a somebody that's selling out their people. And unfortunately, a lot of the mobs suffer from, I believe, Stockholm Syndrome because they've been brainwashed into, you know, trying to um, please the white man, please the policies and legislation and just kind, like, reinforcing um, or that oppression yeah. for our mob. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, so um, also just to add to that, like, with Roxanne and I, you know, we never asked for this life. Our ancestors may have just put us here and guided us to be the warriors that they were once before. Yeah. And to be able to to lead the lead the way for our younger generations to follow our footsteps and to look at us also. If they can do it, we could do it also. And it's by making the right choices in life. You know, I could I could have been just a person on Centrelink walking the streets. I never asked for this life. I never asked to, you know, speak up for land. And it was given to me spiritually. And I didn't say no to it. I didn't say no to Rachel or to no to anybody else to be part of this campaign. Deep down, my ancestors spoke to me and drove me and pushed me to the limit to, to, to be there and to speak up and to understand what the mining companies are doing to this beautiful, rugged, you know, ancient country of ours and to, to give it to people for this happening as, you know, profit and, the, you know, like look at what happened in... WA at Rio Tinto destroyed the, you know, rock. the rock, the the sacred it's objects, and all they just got was an apology. Did if they? That, if an that. Empty mm, one. Mm. Yeah. When I saw that, I cried, and it it really broke my heart. And that people, you know, sorry, I'm getting a bit teary. Um, you know, still to this day, our old people are trying to you know, fight for what's right to protect the country and you got all these big fat cats just don't want to listen, just don't really care at all because they just worry about the money 
and we've got old people in WA that's constantly fighting and talking and talking and then nowadays you don't see younger kids you know, wanting to be part of this movement and to be part of this campaign and to follow the footsteps. In all honesty, the majority of younger kids nowadays are more into um, worrying about, you know, being on Facebook, edgy, and our people are slowly slipping away from losing our culture and law and... I hope in my lifetime that this culture and law will still continuously happen and to be taught to our younger people and goes on for a lifetime. But the way that I see it here in Australia, we're just going to lose everything. And then the way the government is going and the way that people are acting in remote communities without being, you know... Our people was once happy people and shared and loved and cared for each other. But as soon as organisations such as Central Land Councils and other organisations came in and bought the division, made people and families fight over whose land is what and all that, my great-great-grandmother taught me to look after land and to only claim what's yours, not to go onto somebody else's tribal land and to claim it, only if you got connection as to your totemic um, dreaming that's going through that line. But if you don't have any connection to that land, you cannot say anything or claim anything. Even if you're married into that person's family, you still don't have the right um, and you don't have the responsibility... Um, to speak on, yeah, so we have that kind of, we still have that system and our kinships, but like I said, you know, in my lifetime, I, you know, I still want to see it while I'm alive. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and it's up to our younger generations to continue on. And like I said, also, having this um, space here, inviting um, more of our local people, um, elders, so that people know and understand of what's actually going, because we, we, it's only us that knows all this, what's happening, mm. not everybody else. Mm. So it's people like us that goes back and gives this information and tell families and friends, this is what's going to be happening. Come on, we need to start mm. to retaliate. We need to band together and, you know... Be like Avatar. That's really hard, though. It's it's really hard because our mob are still not comfortable with being in the space of white people. You know, they still are um, really hurt um, from what colonisation has done to us. They're finding it very challenging to, like... Um, be able to be in the same space as white people and be able to talk. Like, some of our mob think we're Rama, like Arita. You know, they think we're just, oh, you know, why would you go there and talk with white people about these issues and that? But, you know, I say that, you know, because we're dealing with so many complex issues, you know, racism is rife in our communities and I, you know, I'll challenge anybody who says otherwise that we're not dealing with racism on so many levels um, and our mob are just they're, they're you know there's so much 
destruction and that caused from colonization and the disconnect and the segregation and that um, that that's come along with it um, our mob uh, don't want to they really rather not be in the same space as white people um, and I don't blame them um, but in saying that what youth can all do for us is help you know use you it's up to you mom to you know, raise our voices, to challenge other white people, you know, to be able to say, hang on, that's not right, um, and, you know, you treat Aboriginal people fairly, actually these measures or these policies and procedures, they're discriminatory. They don't, they're not inclusive. They're not inclusive of all people, let alone Aboriginal people, you know, and, and, I, and I find it tiring sometimes that you know, people like you and I have to carry that torch constantly to say, pull yourself up or say, no, this is not right, because sometimes, um, you know, uh, when particularly decisions are made or legislation is made, you know, people um, do that because, you know, the government do that because um, they don't really, one, consult with us, or two, they only have the, you know, mining companies in, 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 um, put their needs and their profits first, or the government's needs and that profit first. And it's, it's mind-boggling that constantly we're saying, this is not good enough, this, isn't, this doesn't represent us, or this is not going to, um, you know, address our needs, or, you know, or we just want equal rights, we want to be compensated for what's happened to our mob and, you know, and that's our basic right because we never see the sovereignty, you know what I mean? You know, our connection, of course, there's been so much destruction, we're living in a shit, we're in a shitty position as Aboriginal people, it's hard to predict the future with Aboriginal people. I'd hate to see my son's great-grandchildren reading about Aboriginal people in a museum one day saying, oh, this was where my ancestors, my ancestors were once were warriors, but they're no longer in existence, you know, because our land is taken up and our people are being wiped out. So, in saying that, um, you know, we get a band together. Q and I, I know we actively behind the scenes are constantly trying to empower people to say, it's all right, you know, it's a struggle, but let's continuously, you know, um, raise our voices, you know, because what's happening to us is pretty shit and we deserve better. But people like yourself, we need you to continuously, you know, hold the torch for us and, you know, challenge other white people to say, no, what you're doing, you're subscribing to that, that type of way or that mentality of oppression for Aboriginal people or, you know, just creating documents like yourself, Rachel, that raise... The, that like really promote the message and really highlight the the injustices that are going on, particularly in the mining industry. You know, the injustices that are happening in the health system or the, the educational system. You know, um, and we need to tackle it collectively and head on. So. Um. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that and then we'll open, open it up. But um, I, th I mentioned at the screening the other night that I watched the Sovereign Seed film over and over again in order to think about how, like, what else I could add to the fracking story. 
Um, and growing up in Gladstone, Gladstone has a really underdocumented. Um, yeah, it's quite an important location for this kind of combined corporate destruction of Aboriginal land rights and labour rights at the same time. So my, you know, like I grew up talking about corporations at the dinner table, and I didn't actually know that people didn't do that until I left home. But um, you know, like I think as a white person, I think it's really important to understand. Um, how, uh, you know, the relationship of corporations and racism, full, like, full stop, but particularly um, there's an important book called uh, Driving Disunity, the Business Council Against Aboriginal Australia, and it actually just documents, um, you know, once Mabo happened, the corporations just totally freaked out, basically, and they wanted to figure out how to reoccupy all the um, Indigenous organisations that were being made at that time. Yeah, and, and so they created these legal instruments through which they had to stay attached to all the Aboriginal organisations that were forming at that time and, you know, all the major banks um, and all the major corporations uh, were part of that. But Rio Tinto, I mean, I, I mentioned this because everyone's talking about Rio Tinto right now, but it kind of shocked me that people were shocked that Rio Tinto was destroy destroying country because Rio Tinto, that's, it, that's the job of Rio Tinto, right? Um, and... Uh, in particular, um, the director of Rio Tinto um, dreamed up the concept of um, a union of corporations that would collectively unite to, you know, hold back the strength of the land rights movement. And I think, as white people, we need to know those stories because those are those are our. If we have access to the law, those are the stories that we need to tell um, about what exactly is. You know what actually keeps producing racism through the corporate um, corporate laws of this country. Um, on that note, do we have any um, comments from um, Kafa or Alec around the um, current campaign situation or the legal situation, or do we actually have any questions to kick those conversations off around the campaign? Or any any responses to anything so far? Maybe I have a question. Yep. Sure, yeah, maybe take it. This is sort sort of a comment, but more a question to you guys, which is kind of um, so I am involved with CAFA, the anti-fracking group, and it is predominantly a white people's group <laughs> against fracking, but mostly just because it's, I think, slightly different than... It's not like a you know farmer's movement or something like that. It's people who think that fracking is bad, and maybe for a lot of us, the reason one of the reasons we think it's bad is that it affects Aboriginal land, but um, I think there needs to be a lot more work done to connect... Um, to I guess I guess at least for me I feel like I don't really know how to be supportive of um, First Nations struggles for land rights in relation to mining and fracking and extraction in general um, and I think yeah I guess we mostly focus on tackling government and corporations um, but it but it, I think it would be really nice to have more dialogue um, but I'm aware that often it feels like if you try to reach out to people like you guys you're very aware that you do you're stretched all the time and doing a lot of 
a lot of fighting and a lot of talking and maybe don't necessarily need to, to go to every, you know, don't have limited resources and limited time. But um, I guess I'm interested in what you think would uh, or what you wish you could get more support, how, how you would like to have more support from people who are broadly allied but maybe don't know how to be good allies. Maybe that's my question. Well, uh, for remote communities and um, for communities that has big mining companies such as like Hermansburg and then you got like Yundamu and all those um, communities and then you got Tichikala for the salt mine. We need to, you know, at least try to organise like a small group and then slowly get it expanding so that can make our own people understand, you know, this is the legislation of the mining company, you know, this, you, this, this is your right, this is what you can do, this is what you can say, this is how you can take it to court, this is how you can challenge them. Breaking it down in picture words and interpreting it in language because a lot of our mob are more understanding of picture words. Um, cut the big jargons and, you know, the big PhD languages and stuff like that. And in Hermesburg, we do have these conversations, um, in, um, in all honesty. Yeah. We do have these conversations. Um, but it's because of my time with being aged care coordinator and I'm managing, coordinating two communities. Sometimes we just have a conversation over dinner and inviting people and showing them the maps and the future, um, what are the future developments of um, minings on, on whose land and what they're going to do. And so I'm actually invited by Central Petroleum. Uh, <laughs> next month, um, James Van Ruin has invited me for a Q&A session. So that's, that's something there that's really positive for our mob to go to the session to ask these questions and to then ask, well, where, where is the money going? Where is this gas going? Because a lot of people in Hermesburg still don't know where this gas is going and what it's being used for, but still we get this $45 a year. That's not enough. And, yeah. and people still don't understand why they're getting this $45. Or they're just saying, oh, it's just royalty, we're getting royalty, that's it. They don't understand what this money is all about. And then having that, I then had that understanding of Halliburton providing water for, and I think most of you know what company and who owns Halliburton, right? That's like major, major, <laughs> biggest corrupt thing going there. So that them trucks are carting um, water from Alice Springs. They can't get water from Hermesburg. Um, I don't know for somewhat reasons, but um, so <coughs> we are having these conversations, and there are people and families are slowly starting, but it's just a matter of having more resources, mm -hmm. having more documents, having these events out on community so that people can understand and start asking questions because we do have rights to. You know, we and not everybody understand the Native Title Act, 
that by banding together, we can get rid of these things. Um, it's not just one person all the time to be talking all the time. We need that support too, because if you're doing it on your own, I mean, you've got to worry about your own health too, you know. And if you're doing it on your own and you, you, you get burnt out and then you just intend to just forget about it because nobody's talking, nobody's, you know, the wind's not blowing strong enough. So, so it is happening in Hermsburg, that tiny bit of movement. It, we just need more of that. But Hermsburg's ahead of every other community. I'd like to see that in other remote communities. And also, for me, being the football club manager for Western Islander Bulldogs, I get funding from Central Petroleum. <laughs> so I'm in a very tight... Yeah. But with the film, um, had um, everything was all right. There wasn't any... Um, you had lawyers, or, you know, you had to look at the film first. Um, Central Land Council was a bit arm and iron about me and telling me, oh, you can't film. And I'm like, who are you? Who the hell do you think you are telling me not to film on my country? Don't come here and tell me what I can't do. Get out. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Tell a funny story about when I was at Indurri one time, but that's after this. But Hannah, going back to your question, right, about what you can do to be more inclusive, we had the same challenge at Alex. I guess that's why I got onto the board um, after much persuasion from Bob. Um, and, you know... I reckon internally review how you're engaging with Aboriginal people, really try and look at um, what are the gaps and how come Aboriginal people are not more involved. And yes, people like you and I are, are overstretched, but I think it's also because the campaign is not really inclusive of Aboriginal people or marketed to Aboriginal people of them being involved because, it, you know, climate change and fracking and mining, it's, it's everyone's business. You know, it's the pastoralist uh, business, the environmental scientists, uh, their business, our mob's business, you know, the mob that live in town, you know, who couldn't give a shit, really. It's everyone's business, and I think, because we all access, what, 90% of the water in the NT here, you know, um, it really does impact um, uh, how we live into the future. You know, we've been working on or working towards trying to review our policy and procedures and making sure they're more inclusive and culturally diverse and um, how do we market and campaign to Aboriginal people? Um, how do we make sure that we've got a look at talking about creating a cultural um, and diversity safety framework um, and making sure our practices are aligned with that and our language that we use are aligned with that. And, you know, a lot of Aboriginal people, English is their second and third language, and I'm always concerned about what informed consent is, no matter what industry you work in, because uh, for our mom, if they're being asked to participate in something or their IP is used, um, really, what does that mean for our mom do they really understand? Have you fully disclosed what what's going to happen to them or their IP or you know their, their um, rights or whatever? Um, because a lot of our mob, like I said, English is the second, third language, um, and yeah, using simple terms doesn't cut it. Not in my view, anyways. You know, you got to have interpreters. You know, when a major decision about 
oh, we're going to go and um, frack for gas or whatever happens in your community and there's a destruction in, you know, on land. That's huge. Those are huge long-term consequences, not for individual groups, for community, the whole community. And just, just hand-picking individuals to make decisions on behalf of everyone is not good enough. And that's how they get around, get away with doing a lot of these um, agreements and negotiations as well. Um, but in terms of campaigning and whatnot, I think like you've got to be able to reflect and do a review into your approach and who, how you're including people um, to be involved. So, any other questions? Crickets.
in Australia. So I'm just wondering, is there a place with, that can be reached where that discussion is opened up more broadly um, without that putting people at risk within their communities for speaking out against situations and processes where they felt you know, forced to make certain decisions or to accept certain kinds of sponsorship? I mean, yeah, just what, what do we do? What, yeah. So it's a sort of an open question. Mm. That really murky space. Could you share that really honestly here today? Yeah. Do you want to say something to it? How do you find that? Okay. Hi. Um, pulling away from Central Land Councils and just so that. Our own people, us, can be the decision makers. But how can we make this decision when you have that big building up the road there that is so friggin' powerful and that has to back the support of the federal government? And how can we pull away from that? Um, even though they're you know on a lease, you know, like every after twenty odd years they renew it and renew it. Okay, so let's look at you know, terminating the lease, like how can we do that with a big multi, you know, billion dollar, you know, um, landlord um, and just practically just pull away and just, you know, if we look at the legislation and the law side of things and then looking at our own Aboriginal culture and the law side of things and how can we, you know, work on pulling away from these um, decision makers and start making our own um, cooperation, not having anyone to dictate um, how we use our funds or how our land can be managed. It's just simple A, B, C, D, this is how it's going to be. Um, you're not going to come here to destroy the land, you know, no business at all. But for me, I'd probably just, that's my answer, if we just pull away from Central Land Council, and it is happening, people are, doing um, season um, desist notices. Yeah, and also um, there is other conversations happening around and in the country. There are people, there is a, it's on Facebook, they have a Facebook page, and this is actually happening as we speak, and um, these are... Um, very smart people that, you know, did their research and did their homework and and they are actually starting to, you know, present these um, letters. They did one at the um, the um, the government house in Darwin. They did that, and the Parliament House and the NLC. Um, one was out at Kintore but that was a complete different thing. So people are looking at, um, they're called the um, Sovereign Aranda um, Tribes on Facebook. Um, that, that'll give you all the updates in what's happening around um, in the NT and surrounding. But the other Facebook page is called the Original Sovereign Tribes Federation. And it's massive. It is actually happening. People are actually going to these land councils and um, 
presenting these notices to cease and desist and um, so these are the land councils are actually you know closing not closing but just you know closing business for now until they sort something out with 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 the first nations people or where they come from so if we, like I said, if we all band together with the support of you mobbers also, with the support of all the other people in this in this town, then we could just pull away from Central Land Council and say, no, your time's up. You've done, your lease is over. You've done enough. So that's, yeah, so that's my thing. So there, there, there is Facebook things and people are actually starting to do things and there is a movement already for this, yeah. I'm I'm actually just going on what you're saying, Q, and I know because a lot of my family members are part of that um, sovereignty kind of campaign and that. And um, you know, like I said before, we never ceded sovereignty to anybody. You know, we still are actually we still own the rights to this country. You know, First Nations people. Um, I'm I'm glad there is this movement of people waking up and saying this is not good enough. We need more and better ways of kind of, you know, um, governing ourselves. But we know history has taught us that if Aboriginal people become powerful and strong strong enough through their own governance mechanisms, they'll destroy it. They'll take it away from us. The NT intervention saw that pretty well played out, you know, they um, stripped us of our local governance and communities through our councils, seized our assets and dis dis destroyed the power making decision in our um, communities with our mob, you know, and they'll, they'll cry that, you know, they'll put in extra special measures and, 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 and make it out as though Aboriginal people have done um, dirty doings in their communities. You know, I'm worried that there isn't a solution, there isn't a, like a, a um, a plan or objective or strategy to counteract what they're doing as, as a nation, as a federation or a collective. Um, and yes, it's all well and really trying to dismantle CLC and NLC, and I totally agree our mob shouldn't settle for anything. They should, shouldn't settle for anything less. They should always continuously um, find better solutions of representation for their mob, you know, our mob. Um, but I also worry that if you, we are... Um, um, trying to dismantle and um, these um, colonial, I guess, power structures, if you want to call them, um, we've got to have come collectively together to figure out how we move forward. I want to see um, Aboriginal people take full control over their communities and their lifestyles, you know, be able to run and govern their own communities, block the bloody gate for visitors, you know, have um, full control and ownership over, like, decisions in their community and just be self-sufficient, self-running and shut off the world. You know, we, we are entitled to that as Aboriginal people um, and it's just, it's just so sad. It's caught up in legislation, native title, Aboriginal land rights. Um, the government have still have that control over us, you know, um, but um, there is a long way to go. I think in order for us to, I guess, um, um, grow and strengthen, um, we need to continuously um, be at these platforms as Aboriginal people. But what we do in the background is most important because we, you know, lift each other up 
you know, we, we kind of, you know, we do a lot of translating. We, you know, inform our people about what's happening to them. Um, what's the white man doing? Why are they coming with their pieces of paper and asking for things? And what does that mean to them? You know, and just saying, hey, don't settle for less. You know, you're entitled. You're entitled to get the best deal or the best opportunity or the best for yourself and your community in that um, and promoting that constantly and educating our mob. You know, I'd like to see more of that done, not from an, our point of view, but from you mob's point of view too as well. So, like, really helping us to kind of work with Aboriginal people and, um, you know, and, and build us up and, you know, because our, you know, once when the intervention came, man, they stripped us of everything, all our rights, um, our power, you know, and just basically our identity um, and just stripped our hope for Aboriginal people and pretty much set us back into, you know, the mission days, you know, um, and then walked away and said, oh, it's your mob's problem, deal with it. So... You know, I, I think that we are in our, 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 our right as Aboriginal people um, to demand what's an alternative or demand for our freedom and our power as Aboriginal people living on country, living in town. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm unapologetic when I'm uptown and I see racism or I see something like a policy that's like, doesn't like really that like undermines Aboriginal people or dismisses them because um, I'll speak up and speak out but I hope that you do that as well in your day-to-day -day practices and whether you're interacting in the community or in a public space or at work because um, you know it's you can see it it's blatant it's it, it's blatantly obvious the injustices and the things going on, but we just need to continue to speak up about them. And it's just, it's also looking at the targets to educate. I'd probably look at the younger kids, like school-age kids that are just getting out of school and, you know, grab them while they still, you know, their mind is still fully functioning and, and developing and then start, you know, giving them that understanding and teaching them about you know, the mining companies and the, the policies, you know, the legislations and stuff like that. And this is where our old elder, elderly and middle-aged people need to grab them and start, you know, educating them and just pulling them away from the negative, negative stuff, day-to-day -day things, and just, you know, start um, revving them up so they, you know, so they too... When we, you know, depart of this world, they are now in control of this. Mm. Any more questions? Do we want? Was, was is there anyone in the room that wasn't here on for the screening and wants a campaign update? Should, should we? Yeah, let's do it again. <laughs> Hannah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hello. 
Um, this is slightly different note, maybe just more like straight, what can you do to help um, make sure that fracking doesn't happen in the NT? It's a different conversation, but a related one a little bit. Um, but I guess I sort of thought this was a little spill that I gave after the movie, which the movie was giving a lot of context about why it's bad and why it affects people. And I guess this conversation has been about that as well. But I guess I think it's always important when you hear these like really, you know, overwhelming full on situations to know that some things are not inevitable and I think when it comes to extraction and fracking in particular it isn't inevitable, it's very speculative and some of it is no matter how much they want to get that gas and that money it relies on a lot of things that are not yet set in stone and I guess COVID has shown how uh, the, the price of oil and gas has plummeted making it much less profitable and they're really relying on the government to um, to support the, the industry and make it viable. And of course, they're getting that with the federal government at the moment and this promise of a gas-fired recovery and a lot of investment into um, infrastructure such as pipelines and processing plants to make gas from very remote areas of the country in the NT um, profitable to send elsewhere. But um, it's a bit of a transitional moment because most of the gas that they want to take from the NT will be exported to Northeast Asia, to China, Korea and Japan. And all of those countries have recently committed to um, to being carbon neutral by um, or net zero emissions by 2050 or 2060, which means there's a quite a short window. And even though we might never get a ban on things, we can just stretch it out, draw it out, make it hard for them to do anything until it's just no longer financially profitable um so my little spiel is some things that can be done in this context it sounds like um three like this this year is going to be really crucial things are amping up they're already doing exploration again in the beetaloo um but there is with the labor government they have this this inquiry that was spoken about um and they had 135 recommendations that they were supposed to fulfill in order to frack all of which are quite difficult, like quite strong regulations and some of them seem like they will be impossible to fulfill, like um, offsetting all the emissions from fracking. So continually holding the, the government to account of their own rules that they've made as this process goes forward is one way to slow it down. Um, and targeting companies origin and Santos origin are um, retail sellers of gas to households so they can be they're quite vulnerable to divestment campaigns and then as we've seen in the Adani um, the campaign against Adani you can also target the funding that is needed for big heavy infrastructure projects like mining um, and so you know banks super funds all of them are quite vulnerable to people saying well we won't we'll move all of our money out of your super if you're going to support um, fracking companies um, and there's room to do that. And then the other thing is that there'll probably be more um, need and possibility for direct action in the next year as these pipelines are getting built. And we're all a bit on standby to hear from um, traditional owners and others in the, in the places where the pipelines are going through um, as to when they will want support from, you know, us or others to come and physically block things so 
there are three things that will be coming up and need lots of people to do them. Lots of, lots of people is very important for stopping things. Um, and if you want to hear more about that, there's lots of stuff is just on Facebook with there's a Don't Frack the NT or the Central Australian Frack Free Alliance, the two ones that post lots of news and we'll make a real effort to mm, centre the voices of people from affected communities. Yeah. Yeah, just to add to that also, um, uh, the Seed Youth um, Climate Group that came out of um, the Australian Youth Climate Group, um, they also do really well-organised divestment campaigns and since um, the pandemic has hit, they're doing a lot more online discussion as well. So there's actually a lot more that you can access um, of um, yeah, young people organising around fracking and other extractive industry processes that you couldn't access before the pandemic. So. There's a lot out there, and um, Facebook is actually quite useful for that. So thank you so much. Um, I'm also going to um, keep doing, um, being in conversation with you people here around publishing that you know might be needed and stuff like that. So we're going to keep talking. Thank you for coming, everyone. Um, that's it, I think. Yeah. And. Thanks to uh, Q and Roxanne, that was deadly. <laughs>